This week's episode is brought to you by Free Speech TV. On television, radio, and the internet, Free Speech TV inspires viewers to become civically engaged to build a more just, equitable, and sustainable society. For more information, visit freespeech.org. That's freespeech.org. Hey there, it's Ron from Denver Diatribe. We've been experimenting with a new production schedule where episodes are recorded a week in advance, and this week, well, that schedule backfired. Things are changing so quickly with the Occupy America movement right now that there's no good way for a pre-recorded podcast to cover the story without missing some of the latest news. To help fill the gap, please visit denverdiatribe.com where you'll find additional videos, links, and commentary on this topic. Thanks for listening. Intoxicates me with its sunny afternoons. Hello and welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly podcast of news, culture, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado, the most protest-loving city between Wall Street and Watts. Today we're devoting our entire episode to the Occupy Denver protests, the super-secret masterminds behind them, and we'll attempt to answer the question, why is Denver the worst city in America to hold a protest? I'm Ron Doyle. In studio with me today are Vanessa Martinez, Josh Johnson, and Jared Jakang Mayer. Let's get straight to it. So, Josh, why why are these people now moving out of Wall Street and all across the globe specifically? Why are they here in Denver? I mean, I think they're here in Denver for the same reason that they're in Melbourne and the same reason they're in Hong Kong and the same reason they're in Seattle and Boston. It's this is a it's a global issue. It's a global social justice issue. The disparity between the wealthy and the poor. But I, and don't you think these protesters are really just college kids skipping class? You know, CU, DU, Trustfarians that are taking a day off. Every interview I hear on the radio or on television, when I do pay attention to this stuff, it's usually like a kid from UNC that sounds like he found some weed on Colfax and he's having a great time. So I mean, who, who are the protesters that are out there right now on the streets? Uh, well, first of all, I think there's a, a problem with that because that's, it's absolutely false. That there, it's, not a, it's not a student movement. This is by no means a campus movement. Although there is an Occupy, you know, there is Occupy CU and Occupy CSU. But we've seen lots of different types of people out there. And you, you've got mothers and uh, families. And the media tends to, from what I've seen, because Ron, I don't necessarily pay attention to the uh, evening news myself. It's unbearable most of the time. Good for you. Um, it's they always are going to pick the the imagery that's going to shock most. So you see, oh well, we're going to portray whoever is dirtiest or whoever looks like a hippie or whoever you know plays into these stereotypes that the media loves to draw these extreme close up from. on the drum circle. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. That's great action. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was uh, the Denver Post reported. I was down last Saturday for the the largest march. I guess you could call it. It was more of a wander. And the Denver Post reported this, and I've seen this happen at, at um, marches before, but I've never seen the media actually report it. Um, when they left the downtown area to go towards 16th Street Mall, it wasn't a very large march. Then during the march, people that were not planning on marching, who were just walking around, joined in. And I would say it doubled. And there, I mean, there's people that were it, literally in restaurants, saw what was happening, and came outside. As far as the demographics of this group, it's one of these rare times when the protests span across all demographics because we the 90 percent is is not based on an ethnicity it's not based on a political viewpoint it's not based on a gender almost and and isn't that what maybe makes this particular movement more notable or interesting than other types of large protests that 
it didn't get the type of attention it did. And I would say that largely the demographic would be that are down there in the streets camping out or whatever. They are the, you know, gutter punks and college students. And But what, what I think makes it different is that this somehow seems to be representative of a larger a larger percentage of the population. Polls so, are showing sure. that people are supportive of the Occupy Wall Street movement, even if they're not down there. Yeah, well, well the people that are down there are the people that have time to be down there. Sure. Do and soccer moms have the time? I mean, they come and go. When they were occupying um, 24-7, you would see, you know, people coming and going that from very various different walks of life. Yeah, and I think also you're seeing, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot of people that you might have seen from other protests in Denver, in particular Glenn Morris and AIM, which is the American Indian Movement. These people are very comfortable in this type of expression. So it makes sense that they're the ones who are speaking out. They, yes, they are part of the 99%, but they are also the people who we rely on for this type of, uh, this form of expression. That doesn't mean they're not doing other things to make change, and that doesn't mean that people who aren't out there aren't sympathetic or agreeing or doing what they can to build awareness around this 99 versus 1% thing. So Thomas Friedman even suggests that this, the Occupy Wall Street movement, the larger movement is connected to Arab Spring. Is that... No. Did, no. That, this, okay, this bothers me on one point. There's an underlying. It's economic... not. It's not a giant social <laughs> shift across the entire globe. No, I mean, why, I, I why are people throwing Molotov cocktails in Rome over something in Wall Street? Well, I, I mean, there's an economic shift, yes, globally, absolutely. But until the police and the military join the Wall Street protesters, I'm sorry, but there is a lot not to compare to the Arab Spring. There's a lot more going on in the Arab world. Um, we're used to having this as part of our democracy. Uh, they're not. So having, you know, the, it, it's not to say that there isn't an economic tie. There absolutely is. We live in a we live in a globalized economy. Thomas Friedman, I think his idea of the big shift and the the fact that there is disruption right now um, is uh, all of those things are great. But that doesn't mean you compare what's going on in Denver to uh, Libya or Egypt or anything like that. I mean, it, it's very different. But it has been pretty amazing just in the last 12 months, all of these protests in all of these different countries that are so different, seemingly starting up largely led by young people, Arab Spring in Europe, right? In Spain all summer, there were people camped out, occupying the center squares. And you start to think, well, this has all been happening in the last 12 months. What is going on right now at this moment in history? It's actually interesting because I don't know if you guys have read um, David Sirota, the uh, progressive commentator who lives here in Denver, but his book, The Uprising, his argument was that we are going to start seeing more and more and more of these types of protests either coming from the right, uh, sort of uh, almost predicting the rise of the Tea Party and all the anger associated with that, but then also these messy type of protests that seemingly come out of nowhere and no one really seems to understand them and we don't really have the capacity to really figure out what's going on, like why they exist and where they came from. And really, even the participants don't really have a clear understanding of the message that they want to speak. But the fact that they're all happening in the last two or three years is is notable. It, it says something about where we're at. Sure. I think, you know, there's a general frustration, and I can't speak for what's going on in the rest of the world. But I imagine that if I was in high school right now, my, my future wouldn't feel very optimistic. I think that, you know, the options that were available 20 years ago um, to, to establish yourself firmly in the middle class, and if the middle class is disappearing, then, then what are you going to do? Are you shooting to be the part of the 1%, mm -hmm. you know, which is success, or are you going to struggle and be part of the 99%? 
And and how realistic is that in the first place? When your best hopes exactly. are to become a celebrity or a professional athlete right. or a billionaire right. CEO. It's I mean, it's just basically, I think that, for, well, for any movement to be popular and considering that um, polls, at least last week, were showing that 54% of Americans view these protests favorably and compare that to 44% of Americans don't approve of, of Obama's performance. You know, so essentially these protests are more popular than our president. What is making this popular is that it's inclusive of the middle class. In the past, protests have been fringe. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a, it's a niche group of people that have specific demands for a specific action. This is a result of frustration. This is a result of people having enough with something that I don't even know that they know what it is. They just know that in their personal lives, they don't feel as optimistic as maybe their parents did or but I, th I think you're, feel. you're hitting on the point that is exactly the thing that the media is oversimplifying. Everybody's oversimplifying. Everybody's saying, well, what is it that people exactly want? And I think it's pretty clear, at least to me it is, that people want econ more, more economic equality. The thing is, is that not everybody agrees on, and it's not the same for everybody. So how can you have a message if for somebody economic equality means, you know, reforming higher education, and another person it means doing something about their city council or going toward uh, you know, political reform with, in terms of campaign finance. All of these things, no one thing, no one policy, no one action got us to this place to begin with. So it's absolutely ludicrous to think, to, to make these demands of protesters and people who are unhappy to say, what one demand do you have that's going to fix it? That, that's actually an excellent segue. So the Occupy Wall Street movement and, and its subsequent Occupy America protests, they're all, they claim to be a leaderless movement as no official demands, but very clear demands are starting to quietly appear on major websites like whomedia.com. And there are, there are lots and lots of articles out there that are claiming that Occupy Denver and its Occupy that its partner Occupy protests around the country are actually masterminded by, among others, the White House, Democratic National Committee, the Republican National Committee, the Tea Party, and most ironically, Wall Street billionaires like George Soros. Josh, I mean, who is running this rebellion? I mean, if it doesn't have a leader, why are there so many stories that saying there is actually a mastermind behind this? Um, Who's running it? Well, first of all, I think it's pretty cynical to, to include conspiracy theories into this. It's an attempt, it, these conspiracy theories are an attempt to discredit the, the, the movement, to say, to say that it's, it's somehow um, a false manipulation. And, and I find that wholly to be untrue. This leaderless style of, of uh, consensus democracy was really brought to popularity in the late 90s with the anti-globalization movement. And I think that there was a lot of things learned during that movement, and if you don't recall, it was Seattle. Remember Seattle? Remember now, Seattle! Remember, yeah, <laughs> never forget. Never forget Seattle. But, you know, if you look at it, I mean, okay, so let's take the, the, the conspiracy about Wall Street actually being behind this. Um, Forbes covered that, and they didn't cover it and say it, come out and explicitly say it, but it was definitely implied. And you mentioned George Soros. Well, George Soros is a Hungarian-American who is also on the board of the Open Society Institute, which promotes democracy and justice. So, I mean, he's, he has an interest in that as, as a, a world citizen. Um, I think it's also cynical to say that, that the people that are on Wall Street that are the ones making the money in 1% do not value democracy and justice. And there are. If you look at, um, I forget what his name is, but the CEO of PIMCO, P-I-M-C-O, which is one of the largest asset management companies um, in the nation, said to those wondering whether to pay attention to the Occupy Wall Street protests, the answer is yes, and this was reported in Forbes. 
This is more than just a nascent uh, movement that will grow in the weeks and months ahead. It is part of a worldwide drive for greater social justice. So, so you're saying nobody is leading this. Nobody, nobody is no. going out there and saying, "Okay, this is what we're going to do next." No, these are I, what we're, know, this is what we're going to do. that are percolating that you're that you're pointing to. Um, a lot of that is coming from New York, and it's coming from the General Assembly in New York. And the way that they they have it on the site is that they put up some specific bills. And it'll stay on the site as long, and they take votes on each specific bill, and it'll stay up on on the site as long as nine tenths of the people that are voting are voting for it. Now, you would ask other people in the movement, unions, Tea Party folks, whether or not they like it, and and I think that there's some people within these 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 uh, various groups within the movement that probably would disagree with each other. For instance, I think that the Tea Party blames the government whereas people more to the left blame corporations. But it's they're blaming them for the same thing. You know? Yeah, I mean, as far as it being a fake movement or accusations from uh, the right or Republicans that uh, these protesters are being manipulated in some way or being used by, by either the Democrats or, or whatever else, you remember that a lot of people said the same thing about the Tea Party protests and the Tea Party movement when all of that was getting started, that it was just kind of an astroturf campaign being funded by the... Uh, Conspiracy theory, uh, uh, yeah, or the or the the Koch brothers, right? Sort right. of uh, George Soros's uh, counterpart for the uh, for the right. But the thing is, is that having this protest right now, the left or progressive sort of out there being angry and having you know being out in the streets, it just makes sense, right? Uh, it was amazing that post two thousand eight Wall Street crash that there wasn't people out there. You know, yeah. smashing windows and throwing, uh, you know, hunting down bankers for all the malfeasances that caused us to crash our entire economy. But for whatever reason, that never materialized at that particular moment. And now it's it's finally sparked. So whatever the sort of demands are and sort of the messy ways that people are trying to come out to figure out what their message is or, you know, what demands are we going to make, it's, it's almost not really the point, right? It's the fact that it's happening. It makes sense from a historical context. The real question is, is will this be kind of like the Tea Party where it started out as this messy sort of movement, underground movement that actually had a political impact in terms of taking the Republican Party further to the right? Will will this movement be, will the Occupy movement be able to coalesce and have the same type of um, influence on Democrats or other the political and I think, system. You know, and the, I think the problem with that, and this is the problem, the difference between left and right, I think. Um, the right takes marching orders, and the, and the left has spokes council meetings and potlucks. You know, so <laughs> I, I, it, it, that's, that's always my concern. I, the organization of the Tea Party and their ability to I mean, not only influence the political landscape, but actually get people elected is, is something that this element of the left, and again, this is not a left-right thing. I think that if you go down to the protests, you'll see people that, like the signs standing next to each it's, other. It's so not necessarily a left-right thing, but it is definitely, it's definitely a progressive movement. You can see that going on. And <coughs> it does... It the does fact that you're talking like, about income inequality already makes yeah. it more of a sure it does. left you, issue. Sure anytime you say inequality, <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's no right <laughs> movement that deals with inequality. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Blue. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, that, absolutely, that's true. And, you know, you have to wonder, is that, because it's a leaderless movement, is that going to ever yield an actual political candidate? Could someone realistically run on, I'm part of the 99%? Or would the 99% say, 
Ooh, we told you we're not leader. We're a leaderless movement. I don't movement. think he would run. Screw you. You. I wouldn't want to run. Not. Yeah, you wouldn't. But run I think as, maybe he already did. As who? Oh, and yeah. his name is Barack Obama, and right. I think that might be why mm. in two thousand post two thousand eight we didn't see that because there was still that oh. hope was still there, and now the word. hope is gone. Yeah. So well, I, it's I mean, it's also part of the reason why so many people now are having a hard time being happy with what he's done because and at the time when he was running for president, he was like the Rorschach blot. Everybody saw whatever they wanted to see. And yeah. This movement feels very similar to that. That I'm I'm really curious to where it's going to go next. I mean, I'm honestly curious to see if after this next election cycle, if it's even going to continue when things get colder and people have cast their vote, and if it's going to have any effect on this next election. That'll that'll be very interesting to see. Moving right along, let's face it, Denver isn't the best place on the planet to stage a protest. There's black stormtrooper riot gear we got for the DNC. There's the unpredictable weather, the politically independent mindset where we have all sorts of different picket signs in the same protests that contradict each other, and generally kind of happier than most cities and more easily distracted by our surroundings. So, Jared, I want, I want to ask you, do you think Denver is the worst city in America for a protest? I would honestly make that case, and I've been thinking about this ever since uh, on Friday, I think the, the the 14th, that Governor Hickenlooper and Mayor Michael Hancock ordered the police, the Denver police, to go in and clear out the, uh, vet- I think it's called the Veterans Memorial Park in front of the state capitol. All the Occupy protesters, maybe several hundred of them, had been camped out there, had a you know their tents set up, just like all these other cities. And Denver still is the only city in the nation, and I think even in the world, that is cleared out a park in this way for these Occupy protests. And I just keep Cle- thinking— Cleared it out as in made everybody leave. Made yeah. everyone leave. Yeah. Even in, even in New York, right? Mayor Michael Bloomberg, uh, he sort of had threatened that they were going to just clear they out had, the park temporarily to clean, the park. To, to clean it up. On the but, same morning. On the same morning, but the, even they had to back. They backed off of that threat when then the uh, protesters went and cleaned the park themselves. In Denver, by contrast, I think you were you were down there, Josh. Right? You had the cops outfitted in full riot gear, all all of the shiny toys that they purchased for the uh, DNC, just overwhelming force and clearing out these parks in a way that just seems like a complete overreaction but then no one no one really seems to be alarmed by that everything you know the, the denver post editorials it was a good measured response by the denver police and we think that Go- governor hickenlooper made a wise political decision and it's like no other city has done this what does that say about denver i mean it does seem very creepy if you look at the history of protests here in denver there's this trend of the police arresting someone arresting a group of protesters, and then they're gone for a little while, the protest dies down, and then they acquit the people that they arrested without anything else, and then those people sort of disappear. They go into, they go back into the everyday lives, and they stay quiet. That's very 1984, the thought police gotcha sort of feeling for me. I mean, yes, I know I'm going conspiracy theory here, but I mean, Rodolfo Corky Gonzalez, when he protested, he got arrested, and he came back and stopped. He was relatively quiet for the rest of his life. That is just strange to me. I mean, is that something that Denver does? Is that how we deal with it? We arrest people, let it die, and then go away? Um, not to be a contrarian here, but out of fairness, um, I, I do have to say that, that on Saturday, the, the police were very tolerant. 
the, there was this was basically an illegal march, and they could have rounded everybody up and arrested them. And I've been in protests where that has happened. They let it happen. Everybody marched through town. They got back to what what is it called Veterans Plaza, and they let everybody stay for the day, pretty much. But then towards the end of the day, what they started doing is what they did on Friday. They they have their intimidating riot gear with their their pepper spray that looks like fire extinguishers. They march you onto Broadway, push you onto Broadway. Uh-huh. And then say you're blocking Broadway. Uh, it's a setup. Yeah, and you read, even you'll even read in the paper they said they arrested protesters for blocking <coughs> Broadway. Yeah, why were they on Broadway? Right. I mean, that's what I read. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's here's what I think is going on specifically with Denver, and you know, also to to put in the caveats that you know a lot of the people out there that are wanting to get you know are wanting to get arrested and are they're they're kind of the professional protesters sure. that show up every single time. They kind of have their their black masks and their uh, signs, the like uh, sitting in their in their closet, and they just like jump to their attention pro- when the they professionally need to do it. printed signs but, that they've had for years. <laughs> yes, exactly. And what I think what's going on with the Denver police specifically is that they've just had a lot of practice um, through things like the um, dealing with the anti-Columbus Day mm-hmm. protests, which have gone on for years, where people would get arrested, and then with the DNC where they got something like $50 million from the federal government for security, and they had to spend that on something. And what they spent it on was a shitload of riot gear, these crazy expensive toys, these uh, communication systems. They had this one thing that they called the bear. It's like two (laughs) stories tall, this truck that has tires. It looks like one of those huge caterpillar tractors. That's the bear. I want to see it. Blue bear. A lot of this up, up to the DNC, you know, the lead up into the DNC was you had all of these protesters saying, oh, we're going to, you know, 10,000 people, it's going to be another 1968, like the mm-hmm. 1968 Democratic National Convention, which was the protesters completely overstated their case sure and kind of created this fear and alarm among the law enforcement and which allowed and enabled the kind of Denver police to build up this humongous infrastructure for dealing with protests. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of training So they got a lot of training on how to deal with crowds like this, how to not be disciplined where you're not going to have police overreacting, beating up protesters, sort of those visual images that can just actually spark more protests or make the police look bad. So they got all this training on just how to deal with crowds, how to make these protests kind of have to fizzle out or you you arrest people, but you do it in a way where it's not going to uh, spark outrage. Right? It's, it's yeah. not going to turn into like one of the riots that happened in Boulder back in the 90s where you know there's a street party that turns into a four-day-long riot where people are rolling dumpsters on fire down the hill. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and so the police are really disciplined. They and are. You know, that's and a campus And I, and I really think, you know, having been to protests as far and wide as Prague, the police were great, you know? So I think what's, what's really important to talk about when we're wondering is Denver, you know, the worst place to protest in, in nation is why were the police ordered to drive them out yeah why were the police ordered to arrest them you know because the police did that and they handled it well i think i mean there was certainly if you got arrested you wanted to get arrested you had every opportunity to leave and if you needed to be forcibly removed you were in the kindest way possible but they were taking orders but they were taking orders why are why so there is the oppression is more at the level above that so we're saying that the cops are are yeah they're handling things while they've had all this training but they're still this is still remains the only city that they've been kicked yeah, out of. Yeah, snub this. this you know, at so, first this they is ignore so, you, this and is then so when you become d- a threat, it's, it's interesting that whenever you let the Denver police be out all by themselves, they get it themselves into trouble. But right. you put them in their riot gear, and 
their training has yeah, gone. I, I, I think that they, <laughs> they calmed down. I think that they handled it well. They acted very professionally. But I think that the, the thing that keeps coming back to me is why were you out there in full riot gear? Why? It, it, it's almost they were ordered to do that. But I also think that there's this culture within the Denver police and this kind of bureaucratic system where protest happens. They were ordered to clear out the park. But then you go out there in full-on fucking riot gear, right? Like, like there was hundreds of thousands of people, you know, rioting. You know, you, you get in riot gear for a riot, right? People are drunk. People are th- smashing bricks through windows, right? Yeah. That's when you bring out the big guns. Right. Instead, what, what we have now is this kind of beast, this bear of a system at the Denver Police Department where at the, any inkling of these types of protests where they get the green light, they throw everything into it. And it's that intimidation factor, right, that I think we should really step back and question. You go down there and you see a bunch of ragtag people hanging out in a park and we're going to bring out, you know, half the Denver police force in right. full riot gear? You know, because these aren't people that have, the, the protesters, they don't have weapons. You know, I mean, they do it early in the morning. Everybody's half dazed. You know, the police are all hopped up on their donuts and their five-hour energy when the protesters are sleeping with a belly full of vegan food. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of, it's one of the, I think that if, if left alone, it, it would have just continued to go on until it fizzled out, if it did fizzle out. I mean, I, walking home from the movies, I would walk right past the occupation, and it was nice. Sure, there was like 25% of the people there were, were homeless, but it was it felt festive and safe, right? Now when I walk by, there's probably as many people there, but it's shady. So you're, you you're know, saying, still you're occupied. saying that, that area is the, still occupied at night. The, you know? the, poli- the police have now, they've sort of buttressed the movement and sort of given it walls to build up on it so it can actually get bigger. Because they're there, you you think it? Oh, you think it's know. getting, or not know. necessarily they're, bigger, but more forceful than it was before? I don't know. I mean, it's really difficult to organize underneath um, that sort of, as Jared puts it, intimidation. I don't. They're saying the protesters are saying they're going to be out there every Saturday. Um, I, I just th- I just don't understand what. Obviously, it's it's not it's illegal to occupy that space, but you know the, the mayor could have done written up a variance to, to give him a permit, you know, and just let him be and, and, and solve yep. problems when there is a problem, not yeah. not when. And I think that there is a, there is a, the there is a case that yes, we do have laws, and yes, we probably want to have those laws for public parks that say people can't be camping out there because we don't want a bunch of people always camped out in our public <laughs> parks. But you presume that places like L.A. And New York and Madrid have all these same laws, right? They have all these same laws. And so why, what is so different about Denver that all of a sudden we had to do? I think maybe part of it might have been that the protesters chose, the park that the protesters chose is actually state land, right? So that's how Governor Hickenlooper got involved. And that's why it had to be, it had to be Governor Hickenlooper had to make the call. I think early reports were that Michael Hancock, Denver's mayor, was reluctant to, to deal you know, there, there was that bureaucratic thing. There's a city level and the state level. But uh, so maybe if this was if they were occupying the other side of Broadway, right, the Civic Center Park instead, uh, maybe things would have turned out differently because the political pressures would have been different. You would have had these Republicans and right wingers putting pressure on Hickenlooper to deal with this situation as much. But, you know, it was still Denver police that went in and, yeah. and got the job done. Yeah. Okay. They get her done. Get her done. All right. Well, uh, that that's about it. Uh, let's let's go ahead and move on to love and hate. Uh, Vanessa, you want to start us off? Sure. I'm going to give some love to Mike Stemple, who is a local entrepreneur in on the tech scene. He spoke at the recent demo gala put on by the Colorado Technology Association, which was a really wonderful thing that I got to cover. And he talked a lot about um, his his talk was about the death of innovation. 
talked about the importance of art, maintaining your art in this new culture that, this new disrupted culture that we have of um, uh, inside of the techno- technological revolution. So if you have, um, you know, if you, if you have an opportunity to see him speak, I highly recommend it. And Stemple is S-T-E-M-P-L-E. Cool. Josh? I'm going to give some love to the Mayan Theater on Bol- in, on Broadway, on Boulder. On Boulder. <laughs> on Boulder. Um, and, and specifically their uh, monthly film series on Wednesdays. Last month they did uh, Kira Kurosawa, the wonderful Japanese director. This month they're doing all Steve McQueen movies with, uh, on October 26th, Bullet will be played. Yeah, and I'm fun. curious to see what they do each month. It's fun. Wednesdays, there's two showings every Wednesday, so... Jared. So I want to give a mixed love and hate for the location of our live event um, from last week, the number 50 episode, four is through five. And this is, I've been bitching about this for years, but it's so true. And everyone I talk to has this same mixed feeling about Forest Room 5. The decor, the actual feeling of the place is so awesome. It's always changing. I described it to a friend as like like I-70, one of these construction projects where they just never, they, they finish one project and then they just turn around and start building on something else because the, the owners of this place just seem obsessed with always finding new and interesting ways to change up that location. But the service at Forest Room 5 is so shitty. Uh. And not shitty just in sort of incompetence, but just shitty in that they're kind of arrogant and clueless. And so you I, get really angry while you're there. <laughs> like you just want a fucking beer and there's like the, the no, servers yeah, are we, like I mean, we, sitting yeah, there we, chatting with each other. We, we missed the happy hour because there was no bartender for the f- last 15 minutes of happy hour. And, <laughs> and I've had hopes over this over the years because I've been going to Forest Room 5 even, you know, five or six years ago whenever it opened. And it's just never changed. I mean, you just have to accept that you will... Go there, and you will be amazed at the decor. It will be so nice out there, and you are going to leave pissed because the servers are awful. Or you just have to, I guess, just have to deal with it. You just have to get the zen mind about it. Yeah, we continue to have events there. The uh, <laughs> Real Film uh, Club with the, uh, you know, Stars, that's part of Stars. They're having their big pre-Stars Film Festival event there, too. It's like, oh, we're not the only They've ones. They've got us by the balls. They know. <laughs> They've so got cool us by the ovaries. They know. <laughs> All right. Well, um, for... For me, I'm, I'm going to have a, a love for a, a 1% giant corporate monster that's sort of helping us, the 99%. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a little love to Google Voice because we have something very exciting and new on the podcast. We now have a voicemail number where you can call in. If you'd like to share a little of your own love and hate, uh, please leave us a message at 720-282-YELL. That's 720-282-9355. And each week we'll pick our favorite messages and play them on the show. So uh, that's about all we have for love and hate this week. Uh, don't forget you can subscribe to the Denver Diatribe podcast on iTunes, Google Listen, or say hello to us on Facebook or Twitter. For more information, check out our website, denverdiatribe.com. That's why I'm saying, oh, Queen City.